Welcome everyone to the Science Museum. I'm Roger Highfield, one of the directors here. Welcome to Lates. Happy 70th NHS, happy 40th IVF, and most important of all, happy birthday, Louise Brown. Now, we're also here to celebrate our latest exhibition, uh, IVF, Six Million Babies Later, which has been curated by Connie Orbach and Ling Lee. And it tells the amazing story of how a fringe technology was at first hated and then embraced. It's a story of science which has paved the way to deeper understanding of embryo development, stem cells, artificial embryos, and more. But most of all, it's a story about the most fundamental human instinct of all, which is to have children. So let's, first of all, welcome our first guest who will talk about IVF science, Professor Roger Gosden. Coming up, Roger. Roger holds doctorates from Edinburgh and Cambridge, where he worked um, with Bob Edwards, who won, obviously, the Nobel Prize for IVF. Roger was a research director and professor of reproductive science at universities in Edinburgh, Leeds, McGill, Virginia, and then finally at Cornell University in New York. He's published about 300 science articles, book and journal editor, uh, and has lately become an indie publisher as well. And now to our special birthday guest, who's almost 40 years old, because she was born just before midnight on this day, 1978, Oldham, England. Please welcome the world's first test tube baby and miracle baby, Louise Brown. So, Louise, let's, let's just start off with the key personalities in the story. Let's forget about Edwards and Herbie and Steptoe, your mum and dad. Tell, tell, tell me about what they were thinking in the run-up to dealing with, uh, with, with the team in Oldham. Well, mum went to her doctor with depression, um, and they found that the underlying um, factor was that mum was, wasn't able to conceive for about nine years. Um, so she went to see a local specialist who then um, said, unfortunately, she couldn't do anything for the mum and dad. So, but she'd heard that there was um, a gynecologist up in Oldham that was um, doing some tests and that um, she would put mum in contact with Patrick. And so your, your mother, I mean, IVF today is fairly gruelling. Was she a made of steel? Was she a tough kind of person, or did she just not know what she was getting herself into? Um, Mum was a very shy and quiet lady. Um, she hated any attention, um, but all she wanted was a baby, and she would have done anything. So, Roger, just to go to the scientific backstory to this, there's a long chain of research, isn't there, behind this sort of breakthrough mm -hmm. moment? Um, just gi give us a sense of... of just briefly, just the, the advances that got to the point where the first in vitro fertilization would, would work, because it was attempted in the nursery. Okay. First of all, happy birthday. Uh -huh. From America. <laughs> From friends in America. Okay. Yes, the story really begins in Boston, Massachusetts, where people had this idea. There's an uncle, John Ross, and um, with... Um, Miriam Menken, that like had been Purdy figures, yeah. and they worked together in 40s. But they, we don't think that they actually see, succeeded 
and produced reliable embryos. And then what happened was that John Rock and Gregory Pinkett um, got distracted and they developed the contraceptive pill. Right. And so then... <laughs> and so One end of the spectrum to the yeah, other, basically. Yeah. And there were many claims in animals that IVF had been achieved in rabbits and other species. But there were always doubts about that. And one of the problems was about sperm maturation because it was thought that they had to reside in the female tract. And that was difficult to arrange for human IVF. But the first convincing case of IVF in any species was conducted by a man called um, M.C. Chang. He was um, Chinese. He actually trained in Cambridge. And he achieved this with the... Um, um, with uh, a penis in his um, lab in, in outside Boston. And so that was in the rabbit in 1959. And Bob Edwards was very much influenced by that paper. He saw it could be done in other species, including human. Although when they started the work on human, there were only, I think, three species that it had been achieved in. And they were all rodents. Mm. We so in the lab, uh, I think, were doubtful that it was possible. Well, this is the critical thing. Before we, we turn to, to Louise, just, just give us a snapshot of how the medical establishment of the late 70s regarded Septo Edwards of Purdy. Well, um, Jean Purdy was protected by the men, I think. And she was a tremendously loyal person, but I don't think she got any of the heat. Septo was quite used to it because... He was the pioneer of laparoscopy in this country, and people thought it was dangerous because of the hot lamp in the early days. A man in Reading University developed a cold light, and he used it extensively in the 60s and was having lots of visitors, many from, uh, from overseas. Um, so he was ridiculed for that technology. And, of course, um, Edwards was said to be crazy, really, to even this, even believed that it was possible. Um, although probably around that time he knew more about reproductive biology and embryology than anyone else in the world. He had a huge appetite for learning. And I seem to remember some really big figures were doubtful. People mm. like Jim Watson and DNA yeah. fame, uh, uh, Robert Winston who yeah. became, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But Louise, you're, you're in the kind of curious position. You were the star of this, but of course, you you wouldn't have realised what's going on for very obvious reasons. T <laughs> tell me about the moment that you you first realised uh, that that you were unusual compared with your with other kids and so on. Um, just before I went to school, um, just after my fourth birthday, Mum and Dad sat me down um, and showed the video of my birth um, and said that I was born slightly different to other children um, and that's about all I sort of took in from that and then the rest um, was listening to mum and dad be interviewed um, by the press um, and as I got older you sort of understand a little bit more um, you get sex education at school um, I think I must have been probably about 13 14 when it actually sort of the penny dropped and I realized what it all meant in fact, in the audience, I think we've got uh, John Webster, who was one of the team that delivered you. John, I don't know where you are. If you can wait. Okay, John's <laughs> waving. So, uh, so John brought you into the help, bring you into the world. That's right, isn't it, John? Yes. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> 
So what, what about your peers at school? Did they tease you about it? Did they take it in a sort of sanguine, relaxed way? Um, not really. I mean, I went to school with the same group of um, children, right from primary, um, infant, primary, and then senior. So once everybody got over the initial, um, oh, that's Louise Brown, um, <laughs> it, was, it was fine, um, yeah. apart from if anybody new started. And then everybody would be like, well, who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? I said, well, it's not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the stakes for Louise's birth for the scientific team were mm. sky high, weren't they? Mm. Can you give us a feel for what would have been going through their heads with this, this first pregnancy? Well, probably John Webster would be the best person to <laughs> tell us that story. And um, if I can paraphrase what he told me, was that there was a feeling that when your mum was being wheeled into the operating theatre, there was a tremendous sense of anxiety. Because although they had done all the tests they possibly could on your mum to make sure that you were fine, they could not be 100% sure because it was the first time. Nobody could be absolutely sure. And the stakes were so high, not only for you and for your health, but also for them, for their careers, for their reputation. And because right in front of the uh, operating table were cameras, film cameras, and they were all ready to launch out into the world the next day. So if there had been a disaster, it would have been the most humiliating defeat probably in medical how, history. How many years do you think it would have set back the development of technology if it had all gone wrong? Um, I think well, it's a hard question. It's, it's hard. Question, I think we would have it now. The Australians were hard on the heels mm. of the olden team, but um, it certainly would have raised the spectre, especially in this country. Possibly instead of this country celebrating the first birth, it would be some other country, is my guess. And I suppose we should also mention that, you know, that there were the older notebooks and the, the data over 10 years it's kind of amazing in a way. When I look at the numbers, you've got 282 mm. anonymous women, 457 attempted egg retrievals, 331 attempted fertilizations, 221 embryos who give five pregnancies and two successful mm. births. Mm. So there's this amazing group of hundreds of women who underwent this mm. procedure who sort of we, we forget about a bit, but... Uh, it's extraordinary, and I guess Jean Purdy, I, I seem to remember, played a critical role in, in uh, well, keeping up spirits in what must have been quite difficult circumstances. Yeah, she was Edward's um, assistant, and she was totally meticulous, and uh, this is a characteristic that you really want in an embryologist. So um, she was really playing a role of a nurse's heart, but not a nurse's role. She never was the nurse. She was the scientific assistant, mm -hmm. but um, she was a person of great compassion. And I just discovered a few days ago that she suffered from infertility herself. She was a single lady, mm -hmm. and she suffered from endometriosis and had a lot of pain um, every cycle. So it makes it rather more tender. Mm -hmm. So, Louise, what, what was your relationship with Stepco Edwards and, and Purdy? Um, they were like sort of 
extended family. Um, Bob and Patrick were like grandfathers to me. Um, I don't remember Patrick as well as um, Bob because I was 10 when Patrick passed away. Um, I've got not well any memory of, of Jean, but Mum used to always talk about her and said how she was so lovely and she caring. She died even earlier, didn't she? Yeah, I think it's 85. Yeah, so I was about melanoma. seven, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, but I mean, I will always be very grateful and thankful for them giving me life and giving six million of us life. So. And also Natalie, your sister. Tell me a bit about Natalie because she's um, uh, she's she's in the history books as well for different sort of reasons. Um, yeah, Natalie was the fortieth um, from Bourne Hall, and um, she was also the first IVF baby to have children of her own. So, and she's now got five. And <laughs> <laughs> does she, um, you know? Would she like to have some of the limelight as well? Is she happy to leave it all to you? Um, kind of get I a bit think of sibling so. Rivalry I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think when she was younger, she was probably, um, I mean, we used to do a lot of interviews together. Um, I think now, though, I think she's quite happy to just let me get on with it, really. And you've actually, gosh, you've been all over the place. Uh, it's an extraordinary anniversary. And uh, just tell us a bit about your travels to... Um, well, before we actually got to today, um, I've had happy birthday sung to me on four different continents so far this year. <laughs> um, we went to um, Japan. We've been to um, Chicago. We've been to Marrakesh, um, Barcelona, and finally today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're going to have to go through it all over again at least a couple more times. So... Um, what, what about the state of IVF today? Roger, what, t give us a – it's still not hugely efficient, is it, which sort of surprises me mm. uh, a little bit. And, um, you know, just, just talk us through the, the state of the art mm. and where, how things are heading. Mm. Well, as you describe, it was very, very inefficient of a start. But um, like a lot of technologies, it's a very slow start, and then gradually it creeps up because more and more people are trying it and learning and then sharing the information. One of the things that I can look back on in a bit of horror was that in the very early days when there were new clinics being set up, some were really quite good, but some had nearly zero success mm -hmm. and they should have been closed down. But the rate climbs, and I think in your exhibition it says 25% success rate. Um, in some countries it's a little bit higher, some mm -hmm. countries a little bit lower. If you look at the American data, and I'm not sure what this country shows, probably similar, is that you see a creeping increase each year of about um, just under 1% more successful each year as a result of technology. It's a sort of Moore's law of mm. semiconductors, except much, much slower than that. But it is improving. Um, it will never be 100%, though, because we've got the limitations of nature and human fertility is very inefficient for reasons that we don't fully understand. There are evolutionary explanations, perhaps. But so is it just tweaking things like the nutrient media, or, mm. or, or are there fundamental new technologies that could advance things and make them more, make it more efficient? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of innovation. Um, a number of so-called add-ons that 
uh, unproven that are offered to patients. I personally, if I was looking for treatment, um, wouldn't use them until I saw rather more concrete evidence for them. Um, there's um, video microscopy to monitor your embryo continuously, um, which I think probably helps um, uh, clinics which are not quite so good. Um, it's still a technology that depends upon having really green fingers. It, it involves handling embryos, taking enormous care over the environment, and that probably accounts for why there are differences between centers. But we can expect things to still improve, but they will never get to 100%. Um, that's why most young couples would be told, well, you may not be successful this time, but if you try two or three times, then there's a very good chance of it. But of course, the problem is that in many countries, it's expensive. I'd say one of the things in the exhibition that gives me goosebumps to be seeing is one of the desiccators that was used to incubate you more than 40 years ago, which is, I mean, what, what do you feel when you, you look at your temporary home today? <laughs> um, it's very weird. Just <laughs> <laughs> to think that I started off in that little dish. <laughs> <laughs> and and t today, just tell us a bit about your, your life today, Louise, and, and, you know, give a sense of, because obviously you're, you're, you're only, it's only when you encounter these anniversaries in the press that you think about these things, and 99% of your life has got nothing to do with IVF, I take it. Yeah, I lead a very normal life. I work nine to five as a freight forwarder in Bristol. Um, I have two sons, a husband, and just normal, everyday things. So it must be quite surreal to have this parallel existence. Yeah, definitely. So is it, is it a burden or is it fun? No, I enjoy it. I'm, I enjoy meeting all the people. I enjoy meeting the families that have had to go through it and the outcome, the babies. Um, I just like meeting all the people. So You go to lots of events, obviously IVF success rates are discussed in technology. Is there anything, I mean I know you know the, the, that you're not that interested in the science, but, but you know it's an intensely personal uh, business, and, and are there issues that mean a lot to you uh, in terms of the availability of IVF and things like that? Well, I know um, in the beginning, um, when Bob, Patrick, and Jean started it all, they just wanted it so that everybody could access it, and that would just be really the main thing. Um, but it is available to everybody. And that, that really seems to be a persistent theme, doesn't it, Roger, about the postcode lottery and so on and so forth. Well, it is, yes, that's right. I'm less familiar with the situation in the, this country now. Um, but you will see in different countries, different percentages of um, children who are born by this technology, ranging up to you know, 5 6% in some countries. The higher ones are the ones where there's government funding. The lower ones are the ones where it's private funding. And I have to say that uh, the USA is very low on this list, even though there are a lot of prominent um, centers. It's very expensive there. Now, you did a paper just recently, Roger, looking into the future. Tell us a bit about how many uh, IVF children and children that indirectly would have, would have come from IVF you, you can see mm. by the end of the century. Talk us through a bit, if you will. Well, on your exhibition, it says six million babies. 
actually think it's probably a bit more than that, yeah. maybe as much as 8 million. But we chose 6 million then to make a projection like the uh, WHO or the United Nations does for world population to the end of the century. And um, I work with two mathematically more gifted people than me. One is in, is in the audience, my son, and the uh -huh. other is a m mathematician, statistician in Australia. And so we wanted to get some idea of what the legacy of Edward Constructor was in terms of numbers. Um, I was much more interested in the total numbers of people who owed their existence to IDF, either directly, year by year, through the to year 2100, mm -hmm. um, or indirectly as their children and grandchildren. They wouldn't have existed otherwise. Um, probably clinic directors and companies would be more interested in just the number of conceptions by in vitro. The numbers are quite staggering. Um, and we used extremely conservative numbers. And so at the very lower end, turned out we had about 160 million by that, but um, could be 400 million. And we left out Africa, where fertility, although it's very high naturally, there are a lot of infertile people there, uh, a tremendous stigma. And so probably one day, they will be added to the statistics too. So the numbers are very considerable. So in, as a percentage of the global population at the end of the century, what, what are we talking, a few percent or something like that? Um, yeah, oh yes, more than a few percent. Um, and in some countries like Denmark, which does much more IVF than here, um, maybe 10% of the population will be conceived in vitro or um, owing their existence to in vitro. I suppose another, uh, since we're in the museum and we're interested in, in telling amazing stories all through the era, and, and, eras, and, and of course, you were both united just a few days ago in uh, uh, a memorial for Jean Kirby. Just t mm. Can we t tell me a little bit about, what, about your encounter in Grantchester in last Friday? Um, it just really brings home that it just it wasn't just the two people it was three of them um and it's wonderful to see people together um to create the memorial i mean it's a lovely beautiful stone um and to do the walls with and in fact bob edward spent a lot of time trying to correct the you know the heroic scepter and edward story mm -hmm. didn't he uh, roger mm. He, he did. She never caught the limelight, though. Um, I can tell you a little story about my first encounter with her, though, that you might be interested in, Louise. Uh, I was a green student in, in Cambridge, and um, I went out for lunch one day, and I brought home to the lab some sausage rolls. They were cold, so I looked around the lab for somewhere to warm them up. I put them in this <laughs> oven. The oven was 150 degrees, so I knew it was going to be ready pretty soon. So I put them in there. There was a lot of other stuff in the back and closed it and then went back to my desk. And then I heard this woman shriek. Uh, and, and Jean had opened it and had got this tremendous gust of uh, savory odor, which had perfused all through the glassware on the pipettes and the dishes and everything that she was going to be putting embryos in. So, <laughs> so I always wanted to know whether you had an unusual 
liking for sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> They're okay, but I don't go mad on them. <laughs> well, that was a very surreal and unexpected twist to the uh, conversation. Um, I think, actually, we should try to get a few questions from the audience. So if, I don't know whether we've got some roving mics. Um, they're just... Uh, I've slightly caught them unawares. Here we are. <laughs> put, put your hand up, and we'll try and get a couple of questions. So we've got one here. And forgive me if I can't see you, because it's quite the mm. lights are quite blinding. Go on. Yeah, these two here. Um, and do introduce yourself and, and uh, fire away. Go on. Hi, Louise. Um, I'm Emma Mace, and I'm the press officer for Human Reproductive Learning. Happy birthday. Um, I just wanted to ask, when you were growing up, um, in primary school and secondary school particularly, how did it feel um, knowing, you know, how did you personally feel knowing that you were the first ever, of, you know, first custody baby ever and how did that affect your interactions with your peers? Um, I don't think I really ever thought about it because mum and dad took me out of the spotlight when I started school. Um, so um, the only things we ever did was what... Um, Bob and Patrick wanted us to do. Um, so going through school, um, once everybody knew who I was, it was I went to school with all the same people, so it was fine. Um, when I got to my teenage years, I used to sort of think, when you're growing up and you're getting older, and I used to sort of lie in bed on a night and sometimes think, why me? Um, but I think that was just more to do with growing up and mm. just getting over your um, fears and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of really how it, it didn't really affect me that much. Let's have the next uh, question. I think there's a mic lined up. Oh, fire away, sorry. Hi there. Um, this, this is just in relation to some of the wonderful images that are up um, behind you. Thank you so much to whoever created all of that. But th there are some images up there of some um, of your class who have graduated into the embryos are, and it looks like it's going for quite a long time, so yeah. long time, more than 12 days. Did, right. did the embryo, was the embryo transferred a lot later than it is these days, which is when Bill Richard had a very I fair. can tell you a little bit about that. That was produced by uh, Magda Jennifer Gertz's team in Cambridge, and I think uh, I'm right in saying, Roger, until a few years ago, you could only grow human embryos for sort of six or seven days in, in the lab. Uh, Magda is interested in um, what happens. It's around the time of implantation, um, which happens later. But obviously, you're beginning to bump up against the 14-day limit. So she, uh, and there's another team in the Rockefeller, have come up with different conditions to, to investigate this later, what's called the black box of human development that we don't really understand so well, it could be very important for things like miscarriage and so on. And there's obviously a bit of an ethical discussion now about whether we should stick to Mary Warnock's incredibly resilient 14-day limit or whether we should push it back a bit. So it's really for fundamental research rather than for, for IVF. I mean, I hope that's uh, – because Roger's the real expert. But uh, in fact, Roger, I should ask you, what are, th are there – key technologies around the corner or key developments? Because I seem to remember Bob, Bob Edwards felt that stem cell science grew naturally, or human stem cell science mm. grew naturally out of his work 
what, what kind of things capture your attention in terms of developments in the next couple of decades? Well, one of the most exciting, some people might say scary, uh, developments which would um, counter some genetic problems and also help people who are born without ovaries or testes is um, a technology which is being developed by one of our colleagues and colleagues in Cambridge with uh, some very bright Japanese scientists. And basically, it is a technology which has been proven in mice and being developed gradually in humans where you might take a biopsy like a piece of the skin, grow the cells in vitro. You might genetically manipulate it. For example, if you had inherited um, Huntington's disease or something mm -hmm. like that, which is a um, inherited 50% people um, is carrying, um, carrying it if they get it. Um, it's a stuttering mutation, it's CAG, CAG, the letters there. And uh, to correct that by um, uh, gene editing and then develop these into primitive germ cells and then on from that to make eggs or sperm. Okay, so so you wouldn't, um, okay, you can, presumably, could you actually make um, sperm from uh, a woman's skin sample? What, what about the, yeah, why, how why, does that work? Why would you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can think of some reasons. But, but it, it, it is probably easier to make um, a sperm than an egg. Mm -hmm. An egg has a complicated history. For the sperm, you only need to make the nucleus, really, which has got just a half of the amount of DNA, and then use the technique of sperm injection or ICSI to inject it into an egg. So the male problem, which is often underestimated, could be solved more quickly, I think, than the female one. Let's have a couple more questions from the uh, audience. So we've got one just, just here, and there's another one to line up here. Fire away. Yes, you're ready. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'm Simon. Um, just wondering again from the images here, I can see that there is some kind of inflammatory media and religious kind of connotations as to, you know, your reason for doing this. I wanted to find out what, how that impacted A, the research, and B, your life, and uh, when did that actually change to become favorable? What do you think of Her Majesty's Press, Luke? <laughs> well, How many hours have you got? Mum <laughs> <laughs> and dad received lots of more religious and weird things um, from when I was born, um, which I didn't find out about until I was much older. Um, they did a good job of shielding that from me. Mm. Um, but it doesn't really have an impact on my life. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And um, just because I think something's wrong doesn't mean somebody else thinks something wrong, vice versa. Um, so I just take it, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I think we're in a remarkable position because of the hard work done by the philosopher Mary Warnock mm -hmm. with the advice of the embryologist Anne McLaren who found a way to kind of reconcile, I think, two impossible things, which mm -hmm. is pragmatism, how to mm -hmm. give in fertile uh, couples, children, and then fundamentalism, which is, you know, the embryo and human development is sacred and something for God alone. 
uh, and came up with that 14-day limit. I mean, I, I wouldn't say the war is over, is it, Roger? I mean, you're, you're based in America. You must get this more vividly than anyone here in the UK. You're right that the issue is really still about embryo research. And a lot of people who were opposed to the technology in the first place have accepted it and have um, seen that it's brought great joy to people. So people change their mind. Louise's middle name, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, ethics is not something absolute. People um, evolve their views over time, but there's still uh, op opposition. And, um, of course, um, the Roman Catholic Church still forbids um, IVF because it, it, it believes, or the doctrine is, wasn't always, I believe, that conception begins at fertilization. Um, and yet many people ignore it who are faithful Catholics otherwise. Of course, the science there is quite strange because at fertilization, it's, there's a bit of a break before male and female DNA is mixed. So mm. in the sense of an individual that you and I understand, we haven't really got an individual there at fertilization. Anyway, that's a, mm. another scientific story. Let's have another <laughs> question from the audience. We've got one down there, and I think there was someone itching. Go on. Hi, Vaughan Jones. Um, I'm a journalist <coughs> for part of Her Majesty's Press, so I do a bit of and, uh, <laughs> and also IVF warrior and born in Bristol as well. Um, many happy, certainly happy birthday. Um, question really about, you mentioned before that there's a 25%-ish success rate uh, across the, the globe, which means, of course, there's a 75% failure rate as well. For many of us, I think, in the room, we will have gone through numerous rounds of treatment as well. I'm wondering, Roger, whether you think that the technology and the science is too slow and certainly might be too slow for some of us here. Well, it is disappointing. Absolutely, it is disappointing. And um, I can't explain why it's not 50% or 70% yet. And um, I have to say that I don't see any development that's going to bump it up that quickly. Um, it's difficult to do research in this area. It's sensitive. There are all sorts of limitations. Limitations on the material. But just think about the egg, which is the central cell, really. Um, I'm a feminist, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but um, the, the mature egg is the rarest cell in the body. Once a month for only 35 years or so. You can get more by injecting patients. But it's very difficult to get this material to actually study it. And so there are relatively few centers, in my opinion, even in America, or maybe especially in America, where there is really good research on this. A lot of good animal research, but not so much on the clinical side. So I absolutely agree with you. And it is, I suppose, or should be an embarrassment that we are not further on. And one of the things that I particularly think about is the, the, the people who were the pioneers because they were volunteering, I mean, there were hundreds of them in the early days without any evidence that it would ever work. And they were going through these horrible procedures. And um, so women have been extraordinary in offering themselves in those early days, even when there wasn't really any prospects. And many of them never 
have babies. So my hat off to people who volunteer for the research so it can move forward. We've got time for one or two more questions. Oh, John, John Webster wants to. Can we get John a, a microphone so everyone can hear him? Since, since he did deliver Louise into the world, I think he <laughs> deserves to be heard properly, actually. So. Oh, closer to your mouth, John, sorry. Foreign confidence. <laughs> <laughs> to put things into perspective, what we have to appreciate, and the John has had a long, long time, is humans are not very good with technology. And mm -hmm. God's going to say, young precious people who are trying to obey him, who have an interest on a regular basis, only have a one in five chance, a 25% chance of achieving that success. So they don't, they don't get the, they get the diagnosis. I'd rather better than nothing than get the natural conception. John, what do you, what do you make of these schemes that companies are offering uh, egg freezing and so on in the hope to be assisted? Do, do you think that, that seems quite a gamble to me? I, I wonder what you make of those sorts of things. Well, I can understand uh, it was Facebook that offered to pay for women who had their eggs frozen they live with employees so they could continue with the career and start with, start with the family later on. But it, it, it is a little bit, little bit worrying. Uh, well, while we've got you here, John, just, just tell us, give us um, a couple of flavours of the mood in the operating theatre when that caesarean was done and the, the mood after Louise. It looks like she cried instantly from the caesarean, well, which is pretty impressive. Well, what I'd like to do is to go back uh, three or four days earlier uh, before they did the conversion and Patrick and I were getting changed after op after operating together when his son said to me, John, you know, this story is going to be bigger than a man's landing on the moon today. <laughs> <laughs> it and was huge. It was, mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. it was a huge statement and I, I, I didn't really know what to say to him at the time. <laughs> but... Um, he didn't actually coin the phrase. He'd been at a, a, a press conference two or three days later where Derek Jameson was there. Remember Derek was yeah. the editor for the, for the uh, Daily Express. Yeah. And he was very annoyed that, that the Daily Mail had an uh, exclusive We've got the contract on, on the exhibition. Every, everybody should have had a, a fair share of it. And in fact, he liked the situation to Louis Pasteur. Uh, having been bought out by the Daily Mail, leaving the rest of us to buy our antiseptic from the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably the journalists got up to all sorts of antics to get the story. I mean, just, just very briefly at the end, because... Uh, I mean well, yeah, I mean, for the last uh, at least a month, the, the World Press had been camped outside the maternity block, according to the District General. had decided, he, he planned to do the, the, the caesarean on the 29th of, of, uh, of July, and then on the Tuesday, the 25th, he, he, he phoned me in the morning, he said, John, meet me in theatre at 10, we're going to do the section there. And I never found out why he, he, uh, he, he, he failed to call me. I didn't ask Pastor Matt, I didn't request it, why he suddenly brought it forward. 
But you'd be concerned Louise is actually not 40 yet, isn't she? <laughs> not, not, not. You've got, a, you've got a little bit of time to go, yeah. Louise. About 10 to 12, is it, Louise? 11.47. 11.47. 13.00. So I think, uh, now we've got a little surprise at the end, but maybe let's see if we can squeeze in one more question. Okay, just up here. Hiya. Um, I'm just wondered, wondering about both of you, really. Did becoming parents yourself influence how you thought about the whole process? Um, yeah, I can understand. I never sort of fully understood when mum said that she just wanted a baby. Um, but when I gave birth to Cameron, um, the feeling of holding him in my arms was just, is well, you can't really describe it, is amazing. Um, and that's when I fully understood what mum said when she just wanted a baby. Well, yes. Neither I nor my wife have had problems um, conceiving. Um, my, my American wife is actually the embryologist for uh, your American equivalent, the first choice group baby in America. And um, I think both of us were brought into this field um, not feeling that you know, we were helping people who had a, a problem we could understand, but um, it was just from fascination with the new technology and looking at embryos, and it was later that I started to understand that people really grieve with this mm. condition of infertility. And I think it was the same with Edward. For Stepco, he saw hundreds and hundreds of patients, as John would have done in his career. But for most of us in science, um, he never saw the suffering side. And of course, we, we must think also about the couples who tried and did not succeed mm. I think on that somber note, I'm hoping we have a special guest lined up. So um, for a little surprise. Now, I should say that just after this event, we've got a mood and music event with improv and this internationally acclaimed singer, pianist, and songwriter, Joe Spilgo. And I've asked Joe whether he can do a happy birthday to Louise. So can we, can we bring on Joe Stilgo? Ah, <laughs> welcome, Joe Stilgo. Now... Because we've got to do happy birthday properly. This is a big, big birthday, Joe. Big so happy birthday, Louise. Thank you. Um, okay. So just go for it. Well, you no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. You're, you're improv. Uh, let, let's let's put Louise. Just tell me what who's what's your favourite band? Take that. Take that. It is actually on your Twitter feed. So come on, Joe. Let's 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 have a little bit of. You just said, come on. No, happy yeah, but come on, you're, you're doing this event in about an hour's time. You're going to be mashing event, things though. up. <laughs> so take, take we need a bit of take that with happy birthday. Okay. If we can. <laughs> Any take that, there's a big, right. big range of songs. Come on. Uh, take that. <laughs> come on, you can do it, man. Are they in the audience? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wouldn't okay. be sat here if they I'm were. Come on, Louise. It's fine. <laughs> Today this could be the greatest day of your life. For it's over before we all get drunk. Stay close to me. Hold up, hold up, stay close to me. It's quite a first.
fertile lyric, actually. I did realize. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I still work alive tonight. Happy birthday to you. I think that's kind of what Gary go, go, would do. Let, let's have a let's, 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 let's take that. You can do something there's a bit more upbeat. Time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> a few more. Come on. The cake's oh, out. the cake is coming. <laughs> this could be the greatest cake of your life. <laughs> With just one candle, <laughs> because you're only 39. Louis, Louis, Staples. This is the most I've ever played at take, of Take That. <laughs> Luckily, it's only three chords. <laughs> Now, I, I happen to know a fascinating fact, Joe, What's which that? is the when Louise was born. Does anyone know what was number one when Louise was born? What? You're the one that I want. That's right. How do you know so that? Travolta and Olivia Newton, which seems very appropriate. So, come on, let's have a I bit of... I was hoping it would be Mandy by Barry Manley. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> oh, um, okay. Come on, come on. Suggestions for Joe. <laughs> His last challenge before um, before we wrap up proceedings. Any idea? Any suggestions for appropriate music? Tiny. <laughs> okay. Happy birthday! It's Louise's birthday. Well, actually, in ten to twelve. <laughs> Joe, I think let's do one regular happy thank oh, you, Joe. Thank you. And you've all got to join in, okay? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Louise. Happy birthday to Joe. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sadly, what a lovely way to end. We have to wrap up now. I should say that Louise's brilliant book is in the shop. Rush out and get your copies. Uh, any IVF guests, anyone with a wristband is invited to the Who Am I gallery and should go from the bottom of the IMAX. Everyone else, if they could go through the top doors and into the flight gallery, there are loads of IVF events 
uh, up there. And I should say thank you so much for being a brilliant audience. Uh, thank you so much, Joe. And in fact, there are still a couple of tickets left for Joe and Phil Ball in an hour's time. Go to the IMAX uh, desk if you want some. Uh, thank you so much, Roger, for illuminating the science. And most of all, happy birthday, Louise. Thank you. And good night. Brilliant. Don't you fall apart. <laughs>